You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. OEA Grow is by members, for members. In Season 11, educators discuss a culture of care with Dr. Amy Yillick. Welcome back to Season 11 of OEA's podcast, Grow. This season, we are talking about culture of care, and I'm so excited to have Sarahi Harati here with us to talk about restorative practices. Hi, Sarati. How are you? (laughs) I am well. How are you, Amy? I'm good. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, I would love it if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your background in education, and also what you're currently doing. Yeah, so I have been, I think I'm at like 22 years working in some capacity in education. I started with like an intro to ed class in community college, and when I found out that the need for teachers was in middle school, I decided that I would go there and that kind of just set me up for my education pathway, which led to ending up in Bend and um, teaching a whole slew of different things. I've had ELD, reading, English, Spanish, co-teaching, mentoring. Uh, most recently I was an activities director at a high school for the past five years. And during that time I earned my administrative license, which helped me see the world of education in a very different way, but uh, it was positive. So that was kind of the most recent stuff that I've done in that regard. But then as of August 1st of this year, I stepped into the program director for restorative justice and equity, a local group here in town. And it's been awesome to be on the program end of this versus the last five years where I was still in the classroom, but helping coordinate the efforts of the group with high school participation and yeah. Yeah, no, that's so great. Could you talk a little bit about what restorative justice and equity does and the partnership with schools? Yeah, definitely. So out here in Bend where we're stationed, we, We've been through quite the journey. So the original leaders of RJE actually worked tirelessly to help the local school districts understand the importance of restorative practices. And so they were able in their leadership capacity to create a partnership, which led to a memorandum of understanding between um, our local school district and our program to allow for our volunteers and leadership members and staff to go into schools when requested by administrators or students and staff to support them in implementing various tiers of the program. So doing the practices in the in the schools has been it's had it's kind of like a variety. So you can do we've done like five town halls where we invite high school students from across the region and then most recently 
just from within our local school district to gather, connect, and help basically equip them and empower them to find their voice and create connection and community so that they go out into the world and feel a little bit better about how they how they engage with with their surroundings. And so the RJE, Restorative Justice and Equity, right now has two staffers and a slew of of volunteers. We refer to them as the cadre. And so they, when we receive a call from a school, it could be to work on uh, proactive pieces of restorative practices, but then also formal conferencing, which falls into the more responsive restorative aspect. And so it really depends on what a leader or any individual within the school system, what they need. And then we kind of just navigate from there. Right. That's so great. And I know uh, my organization, Culture of Care, uh, began working with your organization almost right at the very beginning of our work, which we're going into our fifth year. And so I know we do a lot of the trainings for your volunteers on how how to do the work, um, and then you all do the work. So yeah, yeah. we love yeah. our partnership for sure. Could you maybe... I know there's a lot of um, there's a lot of ideas out there of what restorative justice is, and then we throw in this term restorative practices. Could you maybe help the listeners kind of sort through those two pieces a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So restorative justice is more on the end of after something has happened, we're trying to engage with rectifying something. So when we, we've talked about this before, that whole school to prison pipeline kind of a thing. And so you'll see restorative justice as an action take place to try to repair things that have happened in, in the actual system. Whereas restorative practices itself, it's the engaging of proactive work to, well, with the hope that we don't end up having to have this alternative setting to a punitive system. And so when we're engaging with students, adults, whomever, in the use of restorative practices, they're really proactive. They're really, hey, how can we create some some ideas around how to navigate blank scenario in a way that isn't aggressive, in a way that's inclusive, in a way that creates and generates community and connection. And so that's really that proactive piece. And so then, you know, of course there's the 20%, which is, hey, some harm's been done. Let's see how we can unpack this. And yes, it takes time, but it's it has so many lasting benefits if, uh, if there's investment in utilizing it. Right. And so the idea is that, say say a teacher and a student have a fallout and a kiddo say cusses out a teacher mm-hmm. <laughs> or throws a book towards a teacher or even throws a book at a teacher, you know, whatever that might be. Um, and traditional consequences would be the student is removed from the classroom and then they're suspended. And, and yeah. those consequences still may be in place, even using restorative justice. Yeah. But the, Differences is that maybe there's a conversation 
between the student and the teacher after the fact so that maybe there's some healing that happens. And so this kid just doesn't have to come and like slither into the back of the classroom and continue (laughs) working with this teacher and the teacher too, being afraid of this Mm -hmm. particular student, right? Like, oh my gosh, when is this going to happen again? So that difference is more of like, how can we facilitate healing between the parties? Um, And, and again, I think people think of restorative justice as like hugs and lollipops. A kid does something, they get sent to administration, administration gives them a lollipop and they come back to class. And that is not restorative practices at all. That's actually Definitely the not. purposes of it, right? Yeah. It means it's not working because to restore means to, um, you know, come back to a place hopefully of healing and connection. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I've, I've had people ask, well, I just don't understand the difference between like, after something's done, y'all say that you have these different pathways and it's like, well, it depends on the scenario and the circumstance. Is it appropriate to conduct an experience where someone can just share out what's happened? Or is it a scenario where maybe you'd have the individuals involved both being willing to share out while also owning what either of them may have done and then collectively working together to engage in healing. And so again, it depends on what the scenario is, but when it comes to that proactive piece, you know, it can look so different and it could be as simple as having a circle setting so that formation of a circle allows for, students and even their teachers to create a stronger sense of community. Because when we're standing in a circle, we're looking at each other, we're sitting in a circle, looking at each other, there's nothing obstructing our view. Everyone has an opportunity to see everyone, depending on their ability, and then and engaging in that space. And so you're, you're able to more easily interact with one another. And so you could do a circle setting to kind of get everybody warmed up with like a your attendance question for the day. How was it this weekend? I mean, it's, it's actually pretty, there's so many different ways to do this work that doesn't feel cumbersome or overwhelming. And of course now I'm getting into like how you would implement this into your classroom, just because I think sometimes people are like, just tell me what to do. And it's like, well, it depends on what you want to do. And, and honestly, having taught for so many years, I genuinely believe that if someone's a reflective practitioner, that means that they're flexible and they're open-minded. So they're probably, if they fall into that category, already dabbling in variations of this work without Mm -hmm. even realizing it. Because honestly, it's just, like I said, it's when you're doing the proactive work, you're establishing opportunities, creating opportunities for students to connect and create community. And so, and you know, it could also be a circle at the end to close out one word about how I feel right now. But then, you know, in the high school level in the past, I've done it where I co-taught with a colleague, environmental science, and we actually did proactive circle work, engaging students in what if topics, thinking about climate change, whatever the topic was. And the students actually thought in advance about if there were this scenario, how could we proactively engage with our surroundings, our lawmakers and whomever to create change and to be in a caring, caring space? And so, 
again, there the list of options to utilize these practices are literally endless. It's just, I think people need to be connected with someone they can be a thought partner with and then process kind of, oh, this is what I want to get up to. How would you layer restorative practices? And in that, and obviously in that scenario, we're not, we're not undoing harm that's been done. We are proactively thinking about ways to ensure that that harm doesn't happen later. Right. And so it's not just about let's all sit in a circle and hold hands and sing kumbaya, right? Because so many people think of that when they think of circles. Um, But it's, it's, you can use it for content, like you just said, you know, here you're teaching this environmental science course, and you've built it around, let's do some problem solving. So you're like, Mm -hmm. increasing cognitive ability, you're increasing their knowledge of the content. So there's so many ways that this can be utilized. Absolutely. And, you know, there may exist this perception that these practices can only be utilized with older students. And that's not the case. I have a friend who's an elementary teacher right now, and she just posed a question to her students. What does belonging mean to you? What does community mean to you? And the whole group's together. They're in their circle. And these are first grade students who are responding to their teacher's question and the heartfelt, genuine responses from these young, young little kids is just so powerful. And, you know, so again, I think when we are an open-minded educator, we think about, hey, I'm not going to assume that a certain age is ready for some aspects of this work or these practices. I'm going to toss it out there. Let's see what happens. It's all about how we frame it, you know, to be age appropriate. Of course, the concept itself of, you know, systemic systemic issues where we try to seek justice in a restorative way for others that is kind of that's a complex concept but there are always ways and the skilled educator can do this to differentiate you know the the language that's utilized to ensure that the target audience can get on board with what's going on yeah for sure and it's funny because we you know we do the trainings here in central oregon and oftentimes people are like oh that's an that circles are for elementary level right <laughs> but it's like and therefore all levels adults i teach up to graduate level classes and i all of my courses are designed in kind of circle format and we always do a check in and you know i love that you gave the example of a first grade class talking about belonging because ultimately restorative justice and practices are just really relationship centered practices. Absolutely. Absolutely. That create belonging. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we know, <laughs> we know research is so clear. It shows over and over and over again that students who feel that they belong to a school community are less likely to um, drop out of high school. They're more likely to participate in school activities, things like that. They are schools that have a true sense of belonging are considered safe. The people who go there believe that this is a safe environment. And we know that that, you know, people who belong don't want to hurt 
their their team, right? Like yep. their their school. They want to protect it and care for it. So, and then also, I mean, I think just with um, particularly with such an increase in teenage suicide, belonging is one of those big predictors of reducing suicide. So, these practices yeah. can have such a great impact way beyond, oh, this is just how we deal with discipline. Um, yeah. 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 And I, I think too, sometimes in the age of everybody's just a click away in the social, social media, just everything mm-hmm. that everyone has access to and what they immerse themselves in, it can be easy to think that everyone should feel more connected because of easier access. However, we've seen numerous examples of that not being the case. And so I think sometimes it's about really remembering the kind of the intuitive, basic aspects of humanity and being a human and engaging with other humans. I mean, this idea of circles is so natural. I was at one of our high schools the other day. I had gotten out of a workshop that we hosted with some students at their site. And I'm just walking through the corridor and it's lunchtime. And I just noticed all these students had naturally formed circles and they were just hanging out, whether it's bringing back hacky sack, whether it's just sitting in the sunshine and enjoying food. It's this assumption that there are certain behaviors that are only allowable for certain biological ages that really interrupts kind of creates this obstacle to engaging authentically with others. And so when, when we just step back and observe like, Oh, circles are everywhere. When you're hosting (laughs) an event, maybe at your house and everyone congregates in the kitchen, they're in their own version of a circle. And so there are just these pieces of, we don't need to, to like focus on those tiny pieces and then start creating stories around when they should be used or why they should be used or not just show up and, you know, lead, lead with your why. And it's really fascinating to see the, the affective filters of everyone involved just lower. And of course the caveat there is that when someone is attempting to um, engage and utilize, utilizing restorative practices, it has to be done with fidelity and they have to definitely know what they're doing. It's not, you just wake up and go, I'm going to be in a circle and I'm going to ask some questions. That's, it is a little, (laughs) little more complicated than that, but it's not complicated in the sense that it's, you know, an advanced placement course, or you have to have a college degree or formal education. It's, it's basic in its accessibility, but you have to have the willingness to invest just at least a little bit of time to ask questions, understand the components of it, and then knowing when to pivot to different structures depending on the situation. So I think, honestly, utilizing it in the classroom has just been incredibly easy uh, for me and for quite a few teachers I know, actually, at all levels. And so one example that I'll give is um, after hosting a workshop model that engaged restorative practices at my former former high school because I'm on a leave of absence right now. Um, but what we did is we we worked with the students who were part of our multicultural club and student equity group at that school at the time and asked them like what what needs to happen here so we can kind of like shore up this connection, this community thing we're talking about. 
they said, well, people are getting hurt in the hallways and we want to ask them what their experiences have been and then give them an opportunity to let it go. So we conducted this workshop. And again, at that time I was full-time in the classroom. And so we had our JE leadership show up and, and they were super supportive. They, they helped the students understand ways to navigate engaging or sort of practices. So the end result of that first workshop was a request of students. And they asked us, why can't we have a class that does this? So we were like, oh, duh, that's a great idea. Kids <laughs> typically have the best ideas. So we created a class uh, called Civil Discourse. And the whole intention of that class was to, and it's still, it's still happening, um, the, whole, the whole goal there is to help the students who take the class to understand that you don't have to find common ground because there's an assumption embedded in common ground, but middle ground is often something we can achieve if we're open-minded. So learning to acknowledge and accept that everyone has the right to have their own ideas, values, beliefs, etc., And instead of getting upset about those differences, we go, oh, well, that's, that's their stance. And that's okay because they're not making me change my mind. I'm just hearing them out. And so one part of what we would do in that class is have some conversations about, hey, so X experience happened. Let's unpack this. Let's kind of that Monday morning quarterback experience where you look back and you're like, okay, if this were to ever happen again, how could we get ahead of that by engaging a little differently? So we take them through some of those three best basic components, what harm was done, who or what caused harm, and then who or what's responsible for repairing the harm. And so those prompts help the students think about what had happened. And they it's interesting to listen to them because their own bias and assumption really show up for, oh, well, so-and-so's the culprit here, or that person was victimized. And it's like, then you ask them more clarifying questions and they're like, oh. And so they problem solve together. And then that subconsciously, in my opinion, gives them kind of like a little toolkit of like how to engage with something like that that may happen to them later right and how to take responsibility yes for themselves like what a concept <laughs> yeah which is like not something that is modeled in general society right now where you have you know young these young students you know especially in my work with the, the high schoolers their ability to just be genuine and understand or identify uh, in authenticity. I don't know if that's a good word. Uh, is is something that yeah <laughs> is something I really think that um, once we get into adult land, if you will, we we seem to think that um, we can't. We either are blaming someone else, or it's not our fault. But these these teenagers are able to say like, "Why did you do that? And why would you do that? Like that's just not." It's just not nice. And so, I don't know, I just enjoy watching the students knowing that the future is bright because they are brilliant and they're so open-minded and willing to try anything that's going to better their life. They're not sitting there thinking like, oh, I have feelings about this word or it's this or it's that. They go, okay, show me what you got. And then you unpack it with them and then they engage in it and they're like, oh, that actually worked. And you're like, yes. Success. And you just wish you could kind of do that with the adults sometimes because we do get um, into our 
practice behaviors over time. And sometimes it's a little tough to, to see that there's another option. Right. Oh, so true. Wouldn't it be great if we could have the whole world take your civil discourse course? <laughs> I know, I know I've had a lot of, uh, kind of like most recently I met with a student who's in a counseling program and their comment was, we don't have a class to teach us how to utilize these practices in the realm of counsel, like school counseling. Right. I was like, wow, sounds like an opportunity. Maybe we should sit down with the dean and have a chat about how can we weave in even the most basic elements of these practices to enhance the experiences of any person working with other people. Yeah. And ultimately, like restorative practices, I think, is is a way of being, right? Yeah. Like, it's a way of navigating. It's like coming to the table with um, care and concern for each other, but also being willing to take responsibility for my behavior and actually do something to make things better or uh, where we can continue to be in the same space together. <laughs> yeah, Maybe not yeah. better, but like figuring out a way of like, okay, look, this is our world. How can we be together and continue, even if we have differing opinions or perspectives? Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's not hokey. It's, it's not some touchy feely, whatever it's, it's just being real about where you are, what's happening, what you anticipate happening and how you can proactively, you know, create some solutions and ways to navigate. And then on the flip side, there's the, well, you know, we are humans. We are going to engage in receiving the harm or dishing it out. And so right. helping as many people as possible understand the positive impact and potential of fully implementing these practices is just, I can't say enough about how important it is. Cause I, I mean, myself, like here I am, I'm on a leave of absence. I needed a break because I was sitting in my anger, sitting in my anger, getting frustrated about all these things. It took a serious toll on my health. And I was like, okay, I got to do something about this. And so I, I was approached by RJE about this, this position opening up. And I was like, you know what? This is definitely my jam. I've been engaged in equity work and wanting to better any space I'm in for a number of years. And the idea that there's, there's this group and a program that actually that's their one focus was like, um, I'm getting on that train, please. <laughs> and yeah. so trying to, it is strange, you know, to have a title of like program director of restorative justice and equity. It's if like that implies that I'm some guru and I'm not, uh, <laughs> I'm a human being who has highs and lows and there have been multiple times in the last handful of years where I've been living below the line, but that, that honest conversation with myself that I can't do this this way anymore afforded me an opportunity to restructure my time, actually think about that work-life balance. Um, because even though I'm in this role, that doesn't mean that I'm not challenged <laughs> with, you know, which pathway I'm going to, I'm going to select. And honestly, the right now, so I'm at, I think 90 days in this role and I'd say to try to sustain the, 
just the responsibility of this this role, I really lean into my colleague, Trey. He is hands down my anchor and he just exudes all that is restorative and responsive. So being in his space is a constant reminder of the importance of the work, but then even more so how to implement it daily. Because as you said earlier, Amy, it, it is a way of being. And it doesn't mean you're doing that 24-7. It just means that you are consciously making the effort to not be reactive and instead focus on being proactive and then own your stuff when there's an opportunity to do it. And usually that self-awareness is, is a big help when it comes to practicing this, this way of being. Right. Yeah. That's so great. And you just, you just kind of touched on it, but I would love to hear how you, you know, what your process was like for kind of, taking care of yourself to continue to do this work, right? Like whether it was in a classroom with students or doing this work to support schools, um, what do you do to sustain yourself? Well, so I am a biracial, bicultural, multilingual female. And with that comes some seriously interesting and sometimes challenging experiences. So uh, I'll just give an example, like after 9-11, my name, Sarahi Harati, obviously not Jane Doe or whatever. So just right. that, that, that treatment and the, getting swept up into a lot of experiences that were discriminatory. And again, like people don't always intend to engage in those practices, you know, fear drives a lot of those kinds of behaviors, but it, it just showed me the importance of, I know my value and I know my worth. And I know that I'm in this skin suit with these different identifiers for a reason. And so I just embraced that many, many years ago. So coming out, moving to bend, it was interesting to see the kind of differences in really the makeup of the community and how Albeit, like Portland isn't incredibly diverse, but there are a lot of a lot of different ethnicities, different access to different foods and whatnot. And so, coming out here uh, 13 years ago, that that was a big change, but it afforded an opportunity to share my story. And with that, I think that some of my experiences helped some of my students who are also experiencing that kind of dual identity piece of like, hey at home, I function in this way, at school, I'm this way, in the community, I'm that way. And so you have to really switch, you know, like the vernacular, just the whole way you engage with others. And so it, that kind of, that kind of work is definitely exhausting. Um, I felt like I was sustaining it well, because I was very physically active and I got outside and got to enjoy everything Central Oregon has to offer. And then I, I don't know. I just didn't. And then I triggered a, an autoimmune condition and it's kind of just been this, uh, roller coaster <laughs> the last however many years. And, and so getting to that point of having, when your colleagues ask you, do you enjoy your job? Are you happy? And you're like, well, of course I enjoyed. I love being around these kids and look at all the things they're doing. But I'm like, if more than two people are asking me that I am vibing something. And uh -huh. so I had to sit in some reflection and, and say, you know what? Yeah, there are a lot of 
battles we can fight, but what's the cost? And so that internal conversation too of, I really want to live as long as possible in this body and I need to do better things for myself to make sure that happens. And so that was a really difficult decision to put in the request for a leave of absence. Uh, but I believe everything happens for a reason. And so being in this role now has, it's been, it's been a journey the last 90 days. There's been a lot of self-reflection and like surrounded and immersed in, Oh, that wasn't restorative or responsive. Like I'm really glad that just happened in the office and not in public because it's, you know, again, we can have this intention, but it's the impact at the end of the day that matters. And so if we can own the impact, say, okay, I didn't mean to do that, but I see how that was not awesome. This is what I'm going to do, do better next time. And so that's kind of been the journey with that. And I love my dogs. And so I spend a lot of time with, with those fur babies and that just that innocent happiness, you know, and, and being able in this role to still teach and do the best parts of what I think it means to be a teacher. It's this really unique opportunity to still learn and grow as a person, but then I'm utilizing all my skill sets and you never know when you're going to use the, the different tools, but it's been so fulfilling and and I know for some who are like, well, that's nice for you, Sarahi. I'm still in the classroom and this is what's going on and it's overwhelming. And it's like, I know. But I also think the majority of us were teaching during lockdown of COVID-19. And I know for a fact, at least in my circles, there were explicit conversations about the importance of self-care and really the, the awareness of, hey, the pace and the rush and everything that we were doing before being shoved into our spaces for however many months, yikes, that wasn't good for me or the kids. And so I feel like those of us who were able to learn from that and say, okay, these are the tangible things I'm going to implement in my life and in my practice of teaching so I can't take care of myself, it's important. Does the current school structure and schedule support time? No, it does not. Like it's 2023, everybody's running around doing a lot of things. But we can work in some tiny pieces that help us and those mindful practices like, you know, have a chime. And every time the chime goes off, take a deep breath. And then the students will be like, why did you just stop in the middle of your teaching to to breathe? Because it's really important. And so there's these little things we can do that create pause and space within our our interactions with others that can help us kind of kind of go, oh, that didn't feel good. I'm just not going to do that anymore. And there's nothing wrong with interrupting what's going on. You know, um, this workshop we recently did at one of the high schools, that was what the students had asked for was we get the idea of interrupting different forms of discrimination or inappropriate behavior, but how do you actually do it? So we practice with the students, like they had the theoretical knowledge, but they needed that, that actual practice. And some of the the scenarios that they came up with that they've struggled with in the past were when they see an adult in their space engaging in something that's not okay. And how do you let them know that without the ego getting tapped and then it becomes a power struggle. And so we took them on that journey (laughs) and gave them a lot of different ways that they could do that. And it was a positive experience, but it's, you know, even if you're an adult, 
and you've been given those tools and strategies, it can still be intimidating and uncomfortable to engage in that because you don't want to end up in a worse work environment. So all that to say, take a breath, (laughs) learn from the experiences and make the decision about how you're going to conduct yourself in your space, because that does, especially in the classroom, rub off on anyone in our, in our space. Yeah. Oh, so good. Thank you, Sarahi. Yeah. Okay. I have, um, kind of my final question for you. If I gave you a magic wand (laughs) and you could use it in this work of restorative justice and equity, what would happen? (laughs) I've thought about this for a while, actually, just stepping into this role and what the potential is, what the opportunities are, the capacity. And so I think, well, I think I would want everyone to be afforded the opportunity to experience these practices, but experience them in a way that they're carried out with fidelity because then when that happens, I truly believe that it could lead to the implementation of the practices in really any area of our life. And so, yeah, that's kind of like world peace, but it, it really is, (laughs) (laughs) it really is more this people don't know what they don't know. We don't, we don't know what something looks like if we've never seen it before, unless we can, you know, Hey Google, give me an image for, and so being able to expose people, providing opportunities for them. That's something that would be pretty stellar because (laughs) then we would, like I said, we'd be able to say, Oh, you got a little taste of the, I was called the magic potion. Isn't that awesome? Want some more? Hey, guess what? This is how we do it. Um, And I know that sometimes people struggle with, well, where do I start and how do I do this? And okay. Definitely making a plug for culture of care, go to the culture (laughs) of care website and look for a training. Like it's really not, uh, it's not complicated to access the resources because yes, there are free, free, free resources for people. And whether it's going to our program website, which is restorative justice and equity to connect with us, be like, okay, I heard your podcast here's a scenario for you, like type it out, hit submit, and let's start that conversation. And, and I mean, there are so many groups that support this work. And some people will say, Oh, the Institute for restorative practice, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, that's great. It's a fabulous hub for resources. But also if you go there first, you may get a little overwhelmed because there's a lot of information. And so if I could make a recommendation for like a text or something, I would say the little book of restorative justice in education by Howard Zare and Dorothy Vandering is awesome. That is something that a colleague and I used a lot in the creation of our civil discourse class. And it just helped. It helps kind of just take you through the basic components and it opens your mind to other scenarios because, and I get this is off the lawn topic, but I try to think about easy ways to implement like interrupting the systems that exist in, in our spaces. And, you know, think about in school suspension, 
why aren't we training the staff members who are in those spaces in restorative practice? So then when students end up in that space, they can engage in some reflective work in a way that leads the students to either identify how they were harmed and then why they, they kind of escalated or um, they, it gives them a chance to like own, own what's happened to them. And that's just one example, but yeah, the little book of restorative justice in education really provides concrete, but basic and simple ways to, to implement it. And so in that way, maybe my magic wand scenario would work because then people are <laughs> dabbling in it and, and trying, trying something new because you don't know what you don't know. And to make assumptions about how it would go is just kind of setting yourself up for, for failure in that way. So I'd say reach out, like, don't make an assumption that it's too hard to do. Reach out to Culture of Care. Get the little book. Um, reach out to us. We literally are funded through grants and, and benevolent donors who want us to be able to provide these resources for free. So utilize that. That's amazing. I love it. All right. So anything else? Before we wrap up our conversation, anything that you you want to say or share with our listeners? I think just that implementing restorative practices in the classroom is not an in addition to all of the curriculum and the expectations that are on the shoulders of educators. Like I said earlier, I guarantee you, if you're one of those reflective practitioners who's open-minded and you engage in flexibility, you're more than likely doing some of this work. And so I think just reaching out to get the support to ask the questions is a great first start because you don't want to call it something if you don't, in fact, know that's truly what it is because that's how the misinformation about restorative practices and, and what it is, that's how that spreads. And that's kind of a big barrier right now for, um, for our work is, Oh, we got to like pick a different phrase because everybody's got feelings about all these words and you know, it's, it, it is what it is. So you meet the moment and you go, okay, well, what, what does this experience feel like to you? Okay, great. Let's use those words in your school community and just keep going. Cause I'm not, I I'm in this position with a group that established themselves with that title. And that's great because it's pretty easy to know what we're up to. And in 2023, we have to accept that, you know, it's not a hill to die on to say, no, you have to call it these practices because at the end of the day, we all know what we're up to and we're just trying to better the space for ourselves, our students, our communities. So yeah, reach out, get some support. If you, you know, when, especially when we're educating, we're always trying to help our students believe that curiosity is important. So let's practice what we preach and satiate that curiosity by connecting with the resources. Mm, I love that so much. Sarahi, thank you so much for uh, participating in today's podcast. I loved our conversation. I think our listeners will love it too. Um, and for those that are listening, join us for next week's episode. We'll be continuing the conversation around cultures of care and what that means. And I look forward to chatting with you then. And until then, take care. Thanks, Amy.
For more OEA professional learning opportunities, visit grow.oregonad.org.